Please take your Bibles and turn with me on this Easter morning to Psalm number 118, the 118th Psalm. This morning, we are going to be looking at a very familiar verse, but a verse that, at least from my Christian experience, I would say more often than not, has been misapplied. In this case, the misapplication isn't immediately hurtful. It can actually be pretty edifying in its own right. But the negative that is involved is the truth that is missed, that if we properly understood would actually enhance our appreciation of uh, both the significance of the resurrection and the crucifixion. And so this morning we're going to read the verse and we're going to talk about some of the misapplication and then we're going to explore it in the context of this psalm and then we're going to move to its New Testament counterpart. And hopefully now you are really settled in and you're ready to look together at Psalm 118 and verse 24. Follow along as I read Psalm 118 verse 24. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. I first counseled at Camp Joy in Whitewater, Wisconsin in the summer of 1988. And I don't know if they are still reciting this verse at breakfast or not. But for many years, the campers and the staff uh, would say this verse every morning. And uh, quite often the emphasis was on, we will rejoice and be glad in it. Almost as if we've got to give ourselves a little more encouragement in the morning um, to rejoice in this day. One of my former pastors told of a college roommate who would often recite this verse on kind of cold, gloomy, rainy days, cloudy days. And uh, those kind of days are days maybe you don't feel like rejoicing on. And, and this guy apparently would repeat this verse over and over to just battle the tendency to follow his own emotions or allow his emotions to uh, just be impacted by the, the gloom around him outside. And, and sometimes we need encouragement like that. And the verse has been used in that way. And I, I would just add at this point that it is true that every day is the Lord's. Um, in an earlier psalm, the psalmist proclaimed in Psalm 24 that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. So the fact is that every day you live on this earth is a day that has been given to you by God. A day for you to grow in your knowledge of him and service for him and point others to him. And, and we could just continue to extend out the application of that for each and every one of the days that God has given to us. We will be called into account. And we can either uh, be rewarded as a good and faithful servant or we could suffer loss on account of, of how we have spent each of the days of our lives. Uh, this book of Psalms includes one particular psalm which is a prayer of moses and in that prayer psalm 90 in verse 10 he says the years of our uh, the days i'm sorry of our years are three score and ten and if by reason of strength they be four score years 
uh, score is 20 of whatever the uh, object is. So the, the scripture is saying that uh, your average lifespan is generally 70 years. And uh, if you're particularly strong, you, you might expect to live 80 years. So you could think about your age right now. Um, if, if you are 20, at least a quarter of all of your days are already spent. Maybe you are 30. That would be over one-third of your days are already spent. Uh, maybe you're 40. That would be about half of your days already spent. And I'm not going to go any further. I should stop there in, in these unusual days uh, um, with all of the technologies. Some of you might be tempted just to literally turn off this message and be done with it. Um, but, but what should our response be to how fast the years of, of our life, the days of the years of our life have, have gone to this point? What should our response be to really the relatively few days that we all have left? A couple of verses later, there in Psalm 90, Moses prays, So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Remembering that each and every day is a, is a gift from the Lord, determining to spend every one of them yielded to the Lord and rejoicing in the Lord is very commendable. But that's not what our text this morning is referring to. It is not referring to each day in general, but it is referring to one day in particular. This is the day, the psalmist says, which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And, and there are some clues in the context that help us to understand what kind of day the psalmist is referring to. If you'll look back at the beginning of the psalm, the first four verses, you will be able to see a recurring theme. That recurring theme is found at the end of verse 1, because his mercy endures forever. And at the end of verse 2, his mercy endures forever. And verse 3, his mercy endures forever. And verse 4, his mercy endures forever. We're not going to take the time this morning to walk through the study, but I was thankful for the opportunity through a seminary assignment years ago to do a thorough word study on the Hebrew word that is here translated mercy. And in the Old Testament, the word translated mercy refers to uh, a loyal or steadfast love. Then I would just uh, begin to kind of draw out an outline of, of, of this context and start to get towards the day in view by stating this, that the kind of day that the Lord has made that we should rejoice and be glad in is a day which gives occasion for God's people to say that his loyal love endures forever. A day in which people say God's loyal love to his people endures forever, that that's a day to rejoice and be glad in. 
And then there are other clues to the kind of day that is being referred to. You can look at verse 5. Notice the psalmist say in verse 5, I called upon the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. And this distress that he talks about was was a situation, if you look at verse 8, in which who could not deliver? At the end of the verse, it is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in who? Don't put your confidence in men, because at least in this case, that distress was a situation where a man could not deliver. That distressful situation at the end of verse 9 is one in which you can see the last word, princes could not deliver. This distressful situation was one in in verses 10 and 11 where there are multiple enemies on every side. Uh, In verse number 10, he says, all nations compassed me, or the idea is surrounded me. And then in verse number 11, there Again, you can see compassed and surrounded a couple more times. In verse 12, those enemies that surrounded are actually described like a swarm of what? You can see it there, a swarm of bees. And I'll pause here to add another reference point for this day. The kind of day that the Lord has made that we should rejoice and be glad in is a day in which God grants deliverance from great distress. From the kind of distress that no man, no princes of men, uh, distress where there's enemies that are surrounding and there's nothing I can do about it, but God answers prayer and grants deliverance. That would be a day to rejoice and be glad in. And you might be able to look back to a day like that or maybe a a season of days like that where you, you think you've experienced something of that nature. Maybe there were enemies um, from without, some kind of opposition. Maybe even you felt uh, like there were some enemies within fighting to destroy you. In verse 17, there's some indication that the psalmist, uh, that some thought the psalmist might die as a result of this distress. You can see him say, I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. Maybe even he thought it was a possibility at one time that he would die. In verse 18, he states that the Lord had chastened him sore. So he's, he, in this case, he assumed that at least some of the enemies that the Lord had allowed to come against him were the result of his own sin. And we still aren't yet at the place of capturing the full significance of our text, but I, I do want to ask you again if you've ever been in this kind of situation where, where perhaps your own sin has brought on circumstances which are now, as it were, warring against you. And and the great enemy of our soul, the devil, has marshaled together his worldly forces against you. 
then there are actually individuals who have joined in the opposition against you and you start to wonder whether, uh, spiritually speaking at least, you start to wonder whether you're really going to live through it. And in that kind of situation, if you will not trust in men or even princes of men, but you will call upon the Lord, He will deliver you, and a day like that is a day to rejoice and be glad in. And then, as we continue to get closer to our text, we want to note thirdly that this is the kind of a day that can be illustrated by the concept of stones used um, to erect a building. Look at verse 22. Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders refused is become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now our text, this is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. So you think about um, a, a particular stone that was deemed unusable for any profitable purpose and was originally discarded. But in a turn of events, that stone ended up becoming the most prominent stone of the whole building. And the psalmist seems to be indicating that he had known something of that kind of experience in his own life. Now, this psalm doesn't have an inscription that identifies it, uh, that identifies David as the author, but most assume that it was written by him. I think that's an appropriate assumption. Then you can probably remember that David, uh, though he was anointed to be king at God's choosing, God directing Samuel to go and, and anoint David as a man after God's own heart, and even though he was anointed at God's choosing, he was pursued for some time by Saul and Saul's army with the intent of killing him. And, and he had multiple enemies, formidable enemies. Even after Saul was dead for seven, uh, was dead for seven and a half years, the northern ten tribes of Israel still rejected David from being their king before the Lord eventually established him as king over a united Israel. And if Psalm 118 is the testimony of David, it may be that, that it's these kind of events. I mean, he was, even when Samuel went to his father's house, David was the one that wasn't even thought of. Then he's anointed, but, but he has multiple enemies after him. But the day comes in which he is made the head of the corner in terms of the king over unified Israel. May have been that kind of, a, of occasion that gives rise to our text. Now, I think that you would agree that this kind of a day would be a day of great rejoicing. A day in which the Lord demonstrates his, his loyal love 
to one that was rejected as unsuitable, one that was in distress on account of multiple surrounding enemies, and, and he delivers that one from the distress, and he elevates him to a position of honor. That is the kind of day, indeed, that anyone ought to rejoice and be glad in. But though this is the kind of day that the Lord hath made to rejoice and be glad in, whatever, whatever day David experienced, or you have experienced, or anyone else has experienced like that one, that is not the particular day that is referred to in verse 24. We might have thought that David's experience was the primary subject matter if we didn't have our New Testament. But we have a New Testament passage which identifies conclusively one specific day as a day which is to be a day of heightened rejoicing for the people of God. I want to have us go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And to catch just a, a little bit of the context, we're going to back up into uh, verse number 9. Acts chapter 4 and verse 9 is where we will start our reading. Notice, if, if we this day be examined, this is Peter communicating, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified, whom God raised from the dead, even by him doth this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which is become the head of the corner, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now let me just ask you a couple of questions to confirm key statements that, that will really open up our understanding of the text back in Psalm 118. So with this passage in mind, who is the stone that was rejected as being totally unusable? And and, and the answer is, obviously, it is Jesus Christ. I'm looking at verse 10. Jesus Christ of Nazareth. All right, well, who were the builders that rejected him? And for that answer, you might have to go back to uh, verse 5 and verse 6. It came to pass on the morrow that their rulers and elders and scribes and Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, as many as were of the kindred of the high priest, they were gathered together. This is who Peter is addressing. So it was the Jewish religious leadership that had rejected Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And what event marked their ultimate rejection of him? Well, again, in the middle of verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom ye crucified. It was the crucifixion that marked their ultimate rejection. All right, well, with all of that, what event marked God's making him the cornerstone? Well, continuing on, whom ye crucified, whom 
God raised from the dead. Verse 11. This is the stone set at night of you builders when you crucified him. This is the stone which has made the headstone of the corner when God raised him from the dead. Now, brethren, what particular day are we to rejoice in? We are to rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Resurrection Sunday is the particular day to rejoice in. And if I just now go back to Psalm 18, you don't need to turn there, but as we go back through the flow, we are to rejoice in a day in which God demonstrated his steadfast love to his son. And certainly by extension to all who will believe in his son. But we are to rejoice in a day in which God delivered his son from the sin that he bore for us and from the penalty of that sin, which is death. We are to rejoice in a day in which, by virtue of the resurrection, he demonstrated that he had conquered sin and death. We are to rejoice in a day in which the one who was rejected on the cross of Calvary has been given a new position of honor as the exclusive uh, Savior. Neither is there salvation in any other. He's the only one. This is all the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in the eyes of his people. It's interesting that when the women saw the empty tomb and the angels told them that the Savior had risen, Matthew 28 and verse 8 says, they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. How could you not leave that scene with joy if you were a true believer in Christ? And then we're told in Matthew 28 and verse 9, Uh, verse 9, that as they went to tell his disciples, behold, Jesus met them, saying, the first communication Jesus had was to say, all hail. And that same word is translated 42 times as rejoice and 14 times as be glad. First thing Jesus said to those women was, rejoice, be glad. The remembrance of the Lord's resurrection is to prompt elevated joy on the part of his people. And I don't often, as you know, just give a a list. But this morning, as we think about uh, what took place, the significance of what took place at the resurrection, I want to give you um, a list of of, of at least eight scripturally stated outcomes of the resurrection. And you're not going to be able to turn to these, but you might want to jot the references down. But really the point is just the accumulation that ought to be all stirring us to greater and greater joy. The resurrection, first of all, simply displays the power of God. Ephesians 1 verses 19 and 20 speak of the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places. His mighty power 
demonstrated when he raised Christ. The resurrection, secondly, affirms the personal identity and position of Jesus. The personal identity and position of Jesus. Romans 1 and verse 4 says that he was declared to be the Son of God with power. And that's that word for authority. He was declared to be the Son of God with authority by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection, thirdly, validates the work of Christ. Validates the work of Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 34 Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He's risen again. That's how he makes intercession for us. The resurrection ensures the believer's justification. Ensures the believer's justification. Romans 4 and verse 25 says that he was delivered for our offenses and he was raised again for our justification. The resurrection impacts the believer's present life and and our sanctification. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 says, Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. He's raised up so that we could walk in newness of life. It impacts our our present life. And then the resurrection guarantees the return of Christ. The return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 10 urges us to wait for His Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which was delivered from wrath to come. He's coming again in part because he was raised from the dead. It guarantees that he's alive and that he will return. The resurrection affirms Jesus' future judgment of all men. It affirms his future judgment of all men Acts 17 and verse 31 says that he hath appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is a witness to the fact that someday all men are going to give an account to Jesus himself. And then last, but not least to the believer is that the resurrection of Christ assures the believer's own resurrection. The resurrection of Christ assures the believer's own resurrection. And I do want to have you turn here to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And it's appropriate that we turn here and spend a little more time because we have this lengthy chapter in our New Testament that is all given over to uh, the, the teaching of the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and the impact on believers 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and notice verse 20. The Bible here says, But now is Christ risen from the dead, and notice this impact, and become the firstfruits of them that slept. The, the imagery of the firstfruits was 
is from the Old Testament. The offering up of the first fruits in the Old Testament was an action that, that consecrated the entire harvest that was to come. It was expressing faith in the future harvest, faith in God to provide that harvest, and it was showing ahead of time the offerer's thanksgiving for it. But first fruits obviously imply what? They, they imply later fruits that are to come. And the argument that Paul is making in this chapter is that the resurrection of Christ is, is the pledge and is the proof, is the guarantee of the resurrection of his people. Christ's resurrection guarantees the resurrection of believers. Much of the rest of the discussion here goes on to assert that just like Christ was raised up with a real body, uh, an incorruptible and thus eternal one, so the believer is going to also be, be given an incorruptible body. But I want us to have us come all the way down to verse number 52. Notice 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immorality, uh, immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have, shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, the resurrection of Jesus is the assurance of your own victory. Of your own resurrection to an incorruptible and eternal life. One author uh, described an imaginary conversation that a Christian had with death in keeping with the personification of death here in 1 Corinthians 15. The Christian begins the conversation, Hello, death, my old enemy, my old slave master. Have you come to talk to me again to frighten me? I'm not the person you think I am. I'm not the one that you used to talk to. Something has happened. Let me ask you a question, death. Where is your sting? Death sneeringly replied, My sting is your sin. To which Christian replied, I know that, death, but that's not what I ask you. I ask you, where is your sting? I know what it is, but tell me where it is. Why are you fidgeting, death? Why are you looking away? Why are you turning to go? Wait, death, you've not answered my question. Where is your sting? Where is my sin? What? You have no answer? But death, why do you have no answer? How will you terrify me if you have no answer? Oh, death, I will tell you the answer. Where is your sting? Where is my sin? 
It is hanging on that tree of Calvary. God made Christ to be sin. My sin. When He died, the penalty of my sin was paid. The power of it was broken. I bear it no more. Farewell, death. You need not show up here again to frighten me. God will tell you when to come the next time. And when you come, you will be his servant. For me, you will have no sting. Brethren, the resurrection is the assurance that this is not all just wishful thinking and fairy tale and imagination gone wild. Because Jesus has won the victory over sin and death and hell, you and I ought to be where the chapter finishes. We ought to be, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In light of this one particular day, you and I ought to serve him with all of our might every single day of our life. And in addition, we ought to rejoice and be glad in this resurrection day. It is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave on the first day of the week that provided the impetus for the early church to gather together for worship on the first day. Every Lord's Day is to be a celebration of the resurrection. Some time ago I read of a pastor whose name I do not recognize that that takes this so seriously that every Sunday they sing at least one resurrection song. And I don't think that's required, but I, I definitely sympathize with that action. I know most of us aren't gathered together in one place this morning. We are gathered through a computer screen or a smartphone or a smart TV or some, some other technology. But we are gathered, even through those means, giving our unified attention to the Scripture and this theme of the Scripture. Because the majority of us know that God alone has delivered us from the burden and the bondage of our sin. And that he has done so entirely through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're giving our attention to these realities to remind ourselves this is the central fact of our existence. And we're giving our attention to these things together today to praise our God for his glorious salvation in a glorious Savior. God demonstrated his steadfast love to his Son and to all who believe in his Son. And God delivered from sin and sin's penalty. And God has exalted his Son previously discarded on the cross. But he's exalted his son to the position of unique honor as the one and only exclusive Savior. This is the Lord's doing. 
It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord hath made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And dear friend, may you know heightened rejoicing as you reflect upon these glorious truths today. Would you bow your heads and, and close your eyes? I know our setting is different, and yet I just really am constrained uh, this morning, with your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just to even wherever you are, and I know you're in a unique setting, but, but wherever you are, to go ahead and take an additional moment to really reflect upon, upon these truths. And I want to ask you, in keeping with the, the very wording of the text, has there ever been a time that you realized you were in a hopelessly desperate, distressing circumstance because of your own sin? Was there a time when God's grace, as John Newton wrote about the amazing grace, where God's grace taught your heart to fear? Has there ever been a time where you cried out to the Lord in your distress to save you as you trusted in the finished work of Christ to do what no mere man could do and what no other man could do for you. Dear friend, if you have never known that kind of day, then... Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Cry out to the Lord today to do for you through Christ what you could never do for yourself and no man could do for you. Are you here gathered where you are around this truth? Are are you rejoicing in the deliverance from sin? And are you really experiencing, by the grace of God, through the resurrection life of Jesus, are you experiencing more of that freedom, that new life, more and more of that deliverance? Or is it possible that you're, you're willfully bringing yourself back under sin's dominion in some fashion if you if you're dabbling in your sin it's no wonder that you would experience something less than joy-filled passionate worship and service and enjoyment of the lord on this unique lord's day dear friend do business with the lord whatever your need is this morning god bless you